Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we're going to be talking about something that I don't actually know a ton about. Uh, We're going to be talking about ghost stories. Now, there's a lot of times in my grad school career where I've had an idea or had a hunch that I think is right, but I don't have the time to chase it down. There's a lot of reasons why you might not want to spend the time trying to figure out whether one of your good ideas is actually good. Um, There are some uh, types of historiography that have been really, really, really researched to death. Um, They've become so researched that there's just a ton of scholarship that you have to wade your way through, and it becomes increasingly likely that that really great idea that you had is actually somebody else's really great idea, and even if it is still really great, you don't know that. And once you do finish reading, you know, the 13th volume on the Enlightenment in Britain or the 40th paper, then to make your account, you're going to need to position it in those 30 or 40 or 50 different kinds of ideas. Think of it like being a new metal band in like the mid or late 90s when there were millions of new metal bands out there. I mean, there's probably only like 30 or 40 songs that you can do as a new metal band, and they've all probably been made by the time that like Slipknot came out with their third album or whatever. And so if you're looking for a place to waste your time, if you're looking for a a topic to research, you usually go towards those topics that you're interested in but have not been researched to death. And today I'm going to talk about one of those kind of overstudied fields of history that I have not really looked much into because as I was doing my reading I had this idea and I wanted to share it with you. Um, So this is a story about ghost stories. This is a history about the way that people have imagined the evil in their lives. And I just want to warn you before I jump into this, I have not read a single book on ghost stories. This is all coming from stuff that I've read about the changing nature of the home and of everyday life and of night. Um, I'm sure that there's tons and tons and tons of research written by historians and English uh, literature scholars, uh, and I'm sure that they use the word imbricate a lot, and I bet that some of these uh, cite Derrida's specters of Marx and talk about these wild metaphors about, you know, capitalism. I'm sure of it, and I'm sure a lot of it's interesting, but I haven't read it, and I'm not going to read it because it's, uh, you know, secondary to my research. But I think my hunch is interesting, and I think through talking about my hunch about the changing nature of evil in the early modern and modern world, I can show some of the big processes that have been coming up again and again and again in these podcasts. So to start with, I want to break down different kinds of ghost stories, and I think that there are really three big kinds of ghost stories, one that deals with evil people, one that deals with evil places, and finally one that deals with plagues. So in the early modern period, you know, maybe like 1500 to 1700, um, the big worry about evil people was witches. I mean, people really did think that witches were around, and they blamed witches for a ton 
of bad stuff that was happening. If there was, say, a mysterious illness spreading around the crops or the animals, I mean, they didn't have soil biology or, you know, uh, any of the kinds of modern science that we use to explain this stuff. They had to look towards figuring out what on earth was going wrong, and they often decided that plagues of fertility were God's response to evil in the community, or they were the result of human evil. That, you know, if the crops failed, it was because people weren't going to church enough, or they weren't, like, being Christian enough, or there was an evil person who was doing it to them. And this was a serious problem. Experts who were trained in law and religion worked their butts off going to community to community to community, trying to root out these sources of heterodoxy, trying to find the hidden Jews and the, you know, the hidden people who did not actually believe in the Catholic Church's dogma, and of course, in rooting out the witches. Um, a great source of witch hunts is the Hexenhammer, the Hammer of the Witches, which is this massive compendium by, I think, one or two uh, witch hunters describing all of the different ways that they've discovered witches in their witch hunting. And this is not like a frivolous like uh, uh, investigation by a bunch of cranks. This is considered like a science. This is something that is the subject of educated humanistic research. Um, and we know kind of the outline of, of, of witches. Uh, witches were most often uh, marginal women in communities uh, who were blamed for stuff that went bad. Uh, and of course, we have to realize that at this time period, there probably were people who thought that they were witches. There were probably people who did weird rituals, who had the belief that they had uh, magical abilities. So when these guys were going out hunting witches, they could sometimes find witches. So now let's talk about the evil places. I think in the early modern period, the evil places were most often areas of the community at night. So one of the things that happened at night uh, before the rise of electric lighting and street lighting and widely available candles and all that was that people usually went inside. They went to their homes. The community spaces that people would meet in and trade in and hang out in would empty out of their people as soon as it started to get dark out uh, because you didn't feel safe in the dark. It was hard to get around. You could be eaten by wolves. I mean, wolves were really around. You could literally be eaten by wolves or you could be mugged by a highwayman or you could just lose your way because there wasn't a lot of light and people didn't have flashlights. I mean, if you wanted to have a light in the darkness, you would need to have a lantern on you and a candle, and something to light that candle, and you would need to hope that your candle wouldn't go out. So when night fell in communities, particularly rural communities, people would often go into their homes or to a public house. So the public spaces, the communal spaces, the spaces like the marketplace or the crossroads that were in the daytime property of the community now became empty. And I think that this led them to being what we call in academia liminal spaces, spaces that are in between two different concepts. These spaces like the crossroad of the marketplace are both the property of the community and property of the natural world. They're both uh, places that people have made and inhabit and they're places that people have abandoned and have been taken over 
by the inhuman. And because of that, these places are where spirits live. They're the places where ghost stories happen. They are filled with fairies and histories and banshees. They have their own lore and legends about the creatures that inhabit it when humans go away. And so the evil places of the early modern period are those communal places that are emptied out by night. So things change when we go from like early modern to modern. And I know, I know historians out there, it, this is very vague to say when we go from early modern to modern, but things change. First, witches stop being taken seriously. Uh, witches go from something that people are actually worried about, that is the topic of state and organizational concern, to something that is widely doubted. And there's tons of research on why uh, witch trials happen, why people suddenly get freaked out about witches. And my understanding is that we're not entirely certain why. There's a lot of different reasons, and none of them exactly fit. Um, one interesting explanation is climate change. Uh, during the Little Ice Age, which happened in the 17th century, uh, there was a lot of cold and famine and darkness and infertility. And because we had this sin-based economics, this idea that bad things happen because of the morality of the community, people looked for community members to blame. Um, first, they blamed Jews and drove them out. And then when there were no Jews, they blamed other marginal people and called them witches. Uh, also, of course, you had uh, ergot poisoning, um, which happened to, I think, uh, uh, rye. Uh, in colder climates. Ergot is a fungus and it produces a, a compound that's similar to LSD, and when you eat it, you get a very, very, very uncomfortable trip. Uh, and that increases during times of cold, and so it could be that there were reduced cases of ergot poisoning. Nevertheless, what happens at the end of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century is things get warmer. The climate gets better. Food yields increase. And so there's less need to blame witches. Um, there's an increased trust in institutions, which often, of course, symbolize themselves with things like the sun uh, to emphasize, you know, how they give light and order to stuff. And of course, there's the, you know, ever-present Weberian explanation for this change, that it is the cold march of rationality that is advancing through everything, that, that we no longer believe in the mystic, magical realm of spirits that witches feed off of, and so witches disappear. But there's still evil people. Even though uh, the idea of witches disappears, there's still evil people. And I want to mention um, two representatives of this trope of evil person. Um, first is that we have the evil scientist. Now, there were always evil people uh, of, of great authority. We have um, a great example of that in the evil aristocrat. And think evil aristocrat, evil aristocrat, and you will think Count Dracula, right? You have a person in a castle who has immense power over a community who is turned evil by their immoralities and in turn spreads evil to their community. In addition to the evil aristocrats starting in the 19th century, you get the evil scientist. And this, I think, is a symbol of the explosive power that, that people who study the natural world begin to have. People begin to think that humans have a different kind of relationship with the natural world because of the things that they study. 
uh, instead of just being a victim of the natural world, we humans can become creators of it. Uh, the big example of this is Goethe's Faust, who, you know, after he makes a deal with the devil, recreates the earth uh, to make it good, uh, to make it like what an absolutist enlightened monarch would make his uh, territory to be. But an even better example of it is not Goethe's Faust, which we probably don't have a lot of familiarity with in America, but uh, Frankenstein. Not Frankenstein's monster, but the real villain of the Frankenstein story. Dr. Victor Frankenstein, the Frankenstein who is trying through his scientific studies to understand the very nature of life itself, and does so, remember, through one of the big research areas of the Enlightenment, electricity. And so you have the evil scientist. You also have a new kind of evil person in the serial killer uh, who haunts these anonymous, vibrant urban areas. The great example of that, of course, is Jack the Ripper. He's monstrous, sexual, murderous, invisible, unknown. He happens in these places that, like the community places emptied out by night, where the banshees and fairies used to live, are places that are kind of in between. They're public. They are subject to police and law and community. But in the night, this kind of civilization recedes and there becomes in these public spaces in the bad areas where Jack the Ripper went a new kind of vicious, drunken, immoral, prostitute-ridden culture. And it's this liminality, it's this tension that I think creates uh, the cultural worries about the serial killers like Jack the Ripper. Another interesting um, function of Jack the Ripper is about how people figure out that there is a serial killer around. Uh, people figured out that there were witches because you would probably know the witch in question. You might even have suspicions about what the witch was doing. And when a authority came around clutching their copy of the Hammer of Witches, you would say, hey, I think that that person's a witch. The way that people find out about serial killers is through newspapers, through journalism through the intentional construction of salacious narratives by newspaper editors who want to you know, make money, who want to sell copies. Uh, the reason why Jack the Ripper has the name Jack the Ripper isn't because he came up and said, my name is Jack the Ripper. It was a nickname given to him by the newspapers who were covering him who wanted to make it a better story. We also see a change in the nature of the evil place. The evil place changes largely from the haunted community space into the haunted house. And usually in studies of the haunted houses, I've read that the haunted house is actually a rented middle-class bourgeois home. And the reasons that people uh, offer for explaining why the bourgeois home becomes the site of a haunting is because it is the place where a lot of the emotional tension of middle-class life happens. So in London and in most of Britain over the 19th century, if you were a bourgeois, you know, a, middle, a nice middle-class family, you probably wouldn't own your home because owning land was really expensive. You would rent it. And you'd often only rent it for two years, three years, maybe four, uh, before you would move out. And so middle-class families would often have a 
uh, rotating succession of houses, similar to what we have today. And similar to the bourgeois ideal today, in the 19th century, the home was meant to be the sacred space of the family. It was meant to be, the, you know, the, the symbolic peg from which the family hung everything. It was what mattered. It was what renewed the person. It was what created morality. But this home was also transient. It was something that a landlord owned. It was something that also had other families' stories within it. I mean, think of the haunted house story. The haunted house story is that a family, nice, you know, ruddy-cheeked and happy, move into this big and seemingly beautiful house, and then, you know, cut to the house at night, and it looks suspicious. Why is it suspicious? Because the previous occupants were evil. There is a hidden history to the houses that we live in, and that hidden history is itself a source of evil, of instability. My dad has an alternate theory about the haunted house, which I just want to say out there. Hello, Jerry Mackey, if you're listening. Um, and I think it's plausible. I think it's actually a good idea. His idea is that the idea of the haunted house is due to mold. When people uh, live in uh, very moldy environments, and there's lots of like very vicious kinds of mold, they suffer often, you know, craziness, delirium, headaches, uncomfortableness, uh, sometimes even hallucinations. They feel awful. I know I feel awful when I've lived in moldy places. And during this time period, a lot of these houses did not have adequate ventilation. They were often damp. They were moldy. And that could be an explanation for the haunted house. I mean, just think of the, the kind of space that you think is haunted. It is dark, dank, wet, a cellar where you hear something dripping, where there's this vague sense of unease. The same vague sense of unease you get when you go into a super, super moldy house. But I want to just point out that even though most people have stopped believing in witches, and even though there's a lot of doubt about ghosts and spirits in a way that there wasn't doubt about ghosts and spirits in the 15th century, this doesn't mean that we live in a purely rational world where, you know, ghosts are completely gone. And one of the most interesting things to show this is that uh, a lot of the Victorian rationalists who we hold up as, you know, emblems of, of, of scientific credulity do a lot of work into spiritualism. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle, who creates like the arch-rationalist Sherlock Holmes, was interested in spiritualism. Abraham Lincoln, of course, dabbled in spiritualism. The list goes on. Um, Rillian Crooks, a, a British chemist who made a radiometer. Oliver Joseph Lodge, a physicist who was interested in, in radio. Um, tons of, of, of writers and, 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 and scholars believed in the 19th century that there was the same way that science had advanced to understand the natural world, there was the opportunity for research into the spiritual world. And they believed that they were on the cusp of it. They believed that they were getting, you know, data about this hidden, invisible spirit world through seances, through mediums. Of course, they turned out all to be frauds. But they believed that they were getting empirical justifications for their belief in the spirit world. And we shouldn't be too dismissive of them. All kinds of science require trust in the meters that you use to measure the, the, the phenomenon that you're studying. All kinds of science 
uh, require you to disbelieve the status quo. All kinds of science require you to think a little bit weirder. And at this time period, people were experiencing the age of electricity and radio. They knew that there were these invisible things around that had great power. So why shouldn't there be invisible ghosts? So I want to mention um, one last thing about plagues, because I think that plagues don't change as much uh, over time. Uh, I think that the story about plague is, is pretty much the same in the early modern and in the modern period. But I just want to point out some of the ghost stories that follow this template of, of the plague. Um, the big one in the 19th century is the vampire story. Uh, you get infected, you can pass it along to people, it changes your behavior, makes you evil, makes you sallow. Uh, a lot of people have read this as a description of tuberculosis. Tuberculosis was a slow grinding disease. Uh, it was often represented with blood. It made you beautiful, made you thin and you know white and translucent and made you move through rooms like you were ethereal. Um, and it also spread through families and houses. Uh, people gave tuberculosis to their sons and their children and their parents and their brothers and sisters. In the 20th century, we have vampire stories, yeah. I, but I think that the big plague story in the 20th century is the zombie, the mindless mass uh, who are uh, taken over by some sort of hideous biological thing. Um, the thing to point out there, of course, is is how much of the time that the zombie apocalypse takes place in those liminal spaces where we are both at home and in public, the shopping mall, the sites of consumption where we're vulnerable and where we see bits of our, you know, bestial nature coming out, and also of how quickly it's, it spreads. It's always the story of sudden overcomings of communities by this uh, biological danger. Thanks very much for listening to Making of a Historian. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, check out the website on historian.live. Find us on Facebook. Share us on social media. Send me an email. Uh, buy me stuff on Amazon. No, don't do that. Uh, tell your friends. Um, and I will see you guys tomorrow.